Isaiah chapters 34 and 35. This is the perfect word of God. Draw near, O nations, to hear and to give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is stated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, the great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. The hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For from the mouth of the Lord, for, for the mouth of the Lord is commanded, and His Spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever, from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. 
everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. God will redeem his people. Make right what is wrong. And remake and renew what is cursed. The desolated wilderness of his wrath will blossom into glory for all God's people to see. They will walk with him in the way of holiness, free from sorrow and sighing, and enter into joy everlasting. This theme, that God will save his people, is the theme of Isaiah. Thus, we are also constantly reminded, as if we needed it, (laughs) that while salvation is here already, the fullness of that redemption is not yet. We will get to glory, but we have to go through Edom first. It's not that the plan is uncertain. God's plan to redeem and renew cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. It's that the plan unfolds over time, that there's a journey from here to there. In the Exodus, God's people weren't just picked up and set down in the promised land. They needed to follow him out of slavery and along the path of his command. Likewise, by faith, we're to walk along the paths of God's choosing until we arrive with him in glory. Between Egypt and the promised land stood Edom. We read about this in the book of Numbers. You didn't know there were any interesting stories in the book of Numbers, did you? It's Israel's request of Edom for safe passage. The Edomites were offspring of Esau, and their Jacobian cousins needed some help. But along with his genetic material, Esau's resentment had also been handed down. The Edomites would not let Israel through. Instead, they would harass God's people and do all that they could to make her journey harder. History is full of Edomites. Those enemies of God who will do all they can to make the journey to glory harder. They are, as one pastor put it, the antithesis to God's pilgrim people. Edom is invoked in this passage for what she represents, the world that sets herself against Christ and its people. Assyria, Assyria, threatening Israel now, in Isaiah's time, they are Edom. The nations of North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, the world's current greatest persecutors of Christians. They are Edom. Those who opposed Jesus and his message of salvation for all who would follow, Edom. And those who persecute the righteous today, who revile believers, who utter all kinds of evil against you, they are Edom. Both things are true. God will save his people fully and finally. And to get there, we walk through Edom. 
Suffering precedes glory. Darkness precedes light. The agony of the race precedes the joy of victory. And because God is patient, even with evil, even with his enemies, it sometimes feels like the latter will never come. He is working out a plan that gives time for all of his rebellious children to hear his voice and to turn to him. As that plan plays out in history, it provides a lot of time for the hounding and harassing of God's elect along the way. But do not be discouraged. God's patience, though inexhaustible, has a determined end. At the beginning of time, he measured out the right amount of patience for the wicked, and when that is spent in justice, he will avenge his holiness. The Christian life is a journey through Edom, whether in Isaiah's day or ours. And this morning's text, though similar to others in Isaiah that have the same focus, it offers several observations for those of us who are on that journey. The first is the certainty of God's wrath. Certainty that we claim to know and yet may not live in light of. Another pastor asked that God wants us to stop and think, what does it mean to live in a universe where God judges evil? What does it mean? If if we got that right, we would fear the right things, and instead we often fear the wrong things. The passage starts with a description of the earthly armies that had set themselves against Christ and his kingdom, and it leaves no room for ambiguity. Their defeat will be absolute. They will be humiliated and destroyed in the day of Christ's coming. Everything in this world that is built up in opposition to to God will be torn down like the Tower of Babel. There is no alternative. Those who think that God will change his mind are devastatingly wrong. Look at verse 2 to see if God is uncertain about what he'll do. For the Lord is enraged against the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. There is a human tendency to downplay the wrath of God, especially in light of his love. This is both a mistake and a farce. It's a mistake because God's word says what's true. And it's a farce because we don't downplay God's wrath because of our philosophical ideals about its incompatibility with love and his other attributes. We downplay God's wrath because we want to live as though there are no real consequences for sin. This is why there have been so many attempts in history to modify or reject the biblical understanding of hell from both outside and inside the church. Several years ago, it was Rob Bell, pastor of Mars Hill Church in Michigan, who offered what became a popular alternative view. He wrote, A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. This is misguided and toxic. It ultimately subverts the spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, and forgiveness, a message our world desperately needs to hear. To Bell, the prophet Isaiah is misguided and toxic. 
And so you'd ask, what then is hell? And Bell answers, hell is a word that refers to the big, wide, terrible evil that comes from the secrets hidden deep within our hearts all the way to the massive society-wide collapse and chaos that comes when we fail to live in God's world, God's way. It's really just a play on the expression that hell is other people. Because what Bell is saying is that hell is what we do to each other when we don't live the way we should. And granted, that's bad stuff. But to say that the worst thing humanity can ever experience is what we can do to one another is absurd. Isaiah would be dumbfounded. No, he would exclaim, the worst thing we can experience is the unmitigated and unrelenting wrath of God against sin. If you don't believe him, look at the language in verses 3 through 7. Their slain shall be cast out. They're stacking up the bodies. The stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with blood. Why? For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom, and their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. While noting that the judgment is just, because God does nothing out of cruelty, nothing out of excessive severity, one of the reformers also commends Isaiah's intense and exaggerated style here, because you must represent the dreadful nature of God's judgment vividly if you're going to make an impression on people with dull and sluggish hearts. God's wrath, not man's sinful meanness, is the greatest threat to human flourishing. Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Isaiah uses two settings to make the point. The battlefield was the first one. On the battlefield, where God wipes out every human army that stands and has stood in opposition to his grace, Edom will be no more. It will be turned into a wilderness where the animals are happy and the people aren't present. It's a wasteland. And verses 5 through 80 moves the setting to the temple, where sacrifices will be offered to appease the wrath of a justly offended God. But note... The wicked will not be making those sacrifices. The wicked will be the sacrifices. Another explains it well that all the moral guilt not paid for by the sacrifice of Christ will be paid for by the guilty themselves. Christians, someone, someone will absolutely be sacrificed for your sins. It will either be Christ or it will be you. Unpopular as it may be outside and inside the church, the wrath of God is certain. We want good enough for us to be good enough for a holy God. But scripture and common sense reveal that this is not true. And it's not because God is like us. It's not because God loses his temper from time to time. That's why you probably heard me before resist the language of God running out of patience as if he has no more left to spare. 
It's not that. God's wrath is reasoned. It's thought out. It's reasonable. It's just and right. It's not just that he runs out of patience and his emotions get away from him. It's that he's personally invested in what's happening and he will not, he cannot stand idly by forever while his holiness is offended and while his people are persecuted. And thus the consequences, God's wrath, are far worse than what any human could do. What awaits those who side with Edom is not punishment that comes from the hands of men. When the day of judgment comes, the things that will happen as a result of God's wrath against sin will be, for those who experience them, unimaginably horrific. And both Testaments tell us this. This is not an Old Testament angry God against a New Testament friendly God thing. Both Testaments tell us this. And both Testaments put this in the context of corporate Israel and the church and individual, you and me. The wicked categorically will experience God's wrath. Edom will be no more. And the wicked individually, each person who has set themselves up in opposition to God, will so likewise. God is not drunk with power. He's not chomping at the bit to send people to hell for no good reason. But his wrath against sin is great. And those who do not seek his mercy on his terms will experience it. And that's why chapters like 34 have two purposes. They're written to warn the Edomites. The Edomites of all times to call out to them to turn to God for mercy. Why does somebody preach this stuff in 2022? Why does somebody think it matters that you hear about the reality of hell? Is it to scare you? No, it's to warn you about the reality of God's wrath. It's to try and shake you out of the complacent stupor that the rest of the world is trying to place upon you. This matters. This is life and death. And it's to console you. Chapters like this are also intended as consolation for God's suffering remnant. The church, harassed by God's enemies for millennia, should take comfort in the knowledge that God isn't ignoring what happens to you on your journey through Edom. Apart from repentance... Those who persecute the faithful along the way of holiness will be punished. Part of the final experience of our salvation is the wrath of God coming in justice to make things not just new, but right. It, it makes our salvation shine more brilliantly to see it set against the backdrop of hell. It shows us the reality of what we were saved from. It's the grace and mercy of God shining forth with great power. To speak of real wrath and real hell gives actual meaning when we speak of real salvation and real eternity with God. And because these topics are so challenging, because it's so easy to get them wrong, 
it's no surprise that a text like this one also exhorts us that Scripture alone is our guide. Scripture alone, God's words, God's revelation is what gives us right understanding and perspective. 34.16 tells us the answers are only found when we seek and read from the book of the Lord. 35 verses 3 and 4 insists that the leaders preach the grace of God, that this preaching, proclaiming to the people, telling them what God has said and done, this is the only means by which people will become firm in their faith and have right understanding. This stuff, the horrible news of chapter 34, the doctrine of hell, and God's wrath. This is supposed to strengthen faith and provoke joy in God's people? Yes. Turn to Psalm 90 for a moment. Isaiah isn't the only one suggesting that meditations on God's wrath are from time to time good for the soul. Psalm 90, I'll start in verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The heart of wisdom is always strengthened by engagement with the word of God, even on such topics as these, perhaps especially by such topics of these. Where we run into danger, where we run headlong into folly is where we think we don't need this wisdom, that we have plenty of time, that there are no consequences for sin, that we can live as we desire and it'll all turn out fine in the end. Scripture alone rightly orients us to the fear of the Lord and the heart of wisdom. And God, for his part, does not want his grace to be concealed. That's why he tells the people through Isaiah, he tells the priests and the leaders to say this stuff. He's telling them to preach the word, to proclaim the bad news and the good news of the gospel. Another man wrote, God's works are plain enough, yet it is by his mouth, that is by the word of God, that he makes them even plainer to us so that we can see them more clearly. It is the true contemplation of the works of God when we keep our eye fixed on the mirror of the word. What does that mean? We will understand our own experience rightly only when we're holding God's word right up to it. Whatever you go through, whatever's happening to you on this pilgrim journey through Edom, you won't make sense of it. You won't interpret it rightly. You won't understand it. You won't hold on with hope and perseverance unless God's word and scripture are right alongside of you, showing you the way, showing you what is true, and disabusing you of all the world's false notions. 
This preacher said that without it, our boldness is carried to excess. We get out in front of our skis. We think we've got too much figured out and too much under control. Or without it, we take greater liberty than is proper. We presume upon grace. What we need, he says, is the heavenly doctrine to guide us like a lamp. What we find from this word is hope and joy. And it is rare that we would find those in our own experience, especially as we're passing through Edom. It's God's declared promises seen by the eyes of faith that make the journey and its end more clear than the trials of the pilgrimage. That make what God promises about what will be more clear, more real to us than the trials and the hardships that we're walking through on the way to get there. Kids, well... Craig was praying just a little while ago. I was looking outside the window and first came a squirrel and then behind it a cardinal. I was literally distracted by a squirrel while we were praying. And I'm watching these animals and I'm watching especially the cardinal looking for food, hoping that the rains have brought up some worms to the surface. And she's moving from place to place square by square, as if on a matrix, scanning the ground for food. Do you know what the cardinal is not? Worried that there will be no food. Do you know what the cardinal is not? Fearful that God will not provide. And you may say, well, of course, the bird's too dumb to know any better. It doesn't know any better. That's the point. The bird has no knowledge of God's provision one way or the other. And yet it does not worry. And yet you, who have the strong promises of God, the certain hope in what he's declared, you walk through the land of Edom filled with anxiety that need not be yours, feared with fears that will never materialize, carrying burdens that should have been handed off to a loving God long ago. What we find from his word is hope and joy. You won't find them looking in your experiences. Edom is not always a pleasant place. It's not often a pleasant place. And so it's by the light of scripture that we see the end of this journey more clearly than we see its trials. And that's what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is calling the people to look forward. Look past Assyria. Look past Rome, which they don't even know yet exists. Look past the cross. Look past this present evil age. Look to the coming of the Lord. When all of this will be set free from sin and curse, look forward to our arrival in the heavenly Zion. Because if you have the eyes of faith, Standing here in this unrelenting desert, you can just get a glimpse of it. That's what Sunday mornings are supposed to be. Is that what you're doing here? Straining your eyes out across the horizon to catch a glimpse 
of what will be forever. A place where your life is safe and satisfying. A place where there are no tears, there is no sighing. And that's why Isaiah, even as he's passing through Edom with all of its trials and toys, toils, is laying claim to that joy. He invokes one of his favorite themes, the highway, in, verse, uh, in, in 35 verse 8. Because in Isaiah's time, really like life today in Atlanta, highways weren't safe. <laughs> They're places of danger and harassment. They're places of adversity and frustration, just like 285. And he anticipates a future highway where access to God is without that harassment, without that adversity, where Edom is no more. And he's not there yet. But he can just see it off in the distance. And he has, therefore, as he worships God, he has an opportunity to taste and participate in part something that he awaits that is yet to come in full. And that's our opportunity in worship. This language of chapter 35 belongs to us, the church of God. We are on this way. And the certainty of where it leads is what makes us strong. We are on this way. And that God is with us is our sense of protection and comfort and even joy. All the while passing through Edom. Someone wrote, it's joy that pervades pervades chapter 35. Because salvation is not just when we stop being bad. Salvation is when we delight in God's glory and majesty. Children, on this, we owe you an apology from time to time. Your parents, your elders, and your preacher. I think sometimes as we communicate to you what Christianity is all about, the emphasis is on that you stop being bad. That's not enough. That desire is good. As a a grateful response to God's grace, it's a good desire to honor God with holiness rather than disobedience. That's good, but it's not enough. It won't keep you on this highway to glory. What you need is delight in God's glory and majesty. What you need is what we all need. It's a sense of the beauty of the holiness of God, the joy of life in his presence the acceptance that we have there when the whole world has rejected us, the the perfect love that we have there when even the people here who love us best mess it up all the time. That's what will see us through to glory. Isaiah isn't blind. He knows what it's like to pass through Edom. He's not blind. In fact, by God's word, he's seeing things more clearly than anyone else around him. He sees that the ransomed of the Lord shall return. That they shall come to Zion with singing. Why does it matter that you sing in worship? Oh, God didn't give me a good voice. It matters because the ransom of the Lord will come to Zion with singing. 
You better practice now. You better get ready. It moves the hearts. And our hearts need to be moved. Our hearts need sorrow and sighing to flee away. And so we walk with God. We meet with God in worship. We listen to the word of God, not because it will change Edom today, but because it will give us a glimpse of eternity such that whatever we face, the truth remains clear that our future transcends our trials. We've just got to get through Edom first.